Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. The author of Matthew is a brilliant writer. Here's a fun fact. Matthew presents us with eight Beatitudes in two groups of four, each group containing exactly 36 words in Greek. Intentional, coincidence, not sure, but fun to use at parties. (laughs) The literary structure of the gospel further illustrates the author's writing skills. Chapters one through four are a beginning guide to Jesus, where he came from, who he is, how he fulfills prophecy, and how he relates to the righteous. This opening section anticipates the next section in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, chapters 8 through 28 provide echoes of the Sermon on the Mount's teachings. And when we read this amazing gospel, the second, third, fourth, or many times, we will continue to pick up new echoes. As we listen today, it is important to remember that Jesus tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, rather he came to fulfill it. There are approximately 15 instances in which Matthew interprets some event in the life of Jesus as a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament. Not for a moment did he think that Jesus changed or set aside the requirements of the Mosaic law. Rather, Matthew supplements and interprets the requirements in a manner that accords with their original purpose. So let's find our seat on the mountain, look up and listen, and see what this captivating young rabbi has to say. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And from Genesis, we hear these words. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came to his brother. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go alongside you. May God's blessing be upon the reading of God's holy word. Amen.
The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy. Mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God Himself. And earthly power doth then show like His God's when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. And that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. This memorable speech from Act 4, Scene 1 in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice is spoken by Portia, a wealthy heiress who has disguised herself as a male lawyer in order to defend Antonio, the title character in the play, from Shylock, the Jewish moneylender who has demanded his pound of flesh from Antonio in exchange for an unpaid debt. The loan terms that were set pretty early on in the play were simple. Antonio took a loan out from Shylock to finance a friend's journey. He would repay the money to Shylock when his merchant ships returned from their voyage, and if he failed to pay up, Shylock would be entitled to his pound of flesh. And when the ships are declared lost at sea, and Antonio can't pay up, here comes Shylock, who promptly demands his payment, thus prompting Portia to plea for mercy. Now I know, you're asking yourself right now, why in the world is that preacher quoting Shakespeare? And I mean, I thought this was a sermon, not a world literature lesson, right? Well, two reasons. First, I have been waiting for the better part of three years since my arrival to find a place to quote Shakespeare in a sermon. <laughs> I love Shakespeare. That's right. I love it. And the second, upon learning that I would preach upon this text today, I kept thinking of a question, right? How can I describe this idea of mercy? And, and friends, I could think of no other description that captured the absolute essence of this thing we call mercy. I mean, who can hear these beautiful words and not understand and feel their beauty and the truth that they express? Now, on the surface, this beatitude that we have in front of us today hardly seems revolutionary, as the others have that we have looked at. And it is therefore a little bit easier for us to accept, I think, after all, we like the idea of mercy, which is familiar to anyone who even glances at Holy Writ. The concept of mercy is a thread that runs through every single book of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That Greek word uh, is, is eleos. Eleos is the Greek word. It appears in various forms, get this, 593 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint and 78 more times in the Greek New Testament. 671 times, Elios, mercy, 
Some scholars have even argued that the eloquent words that Shakespeare has Portia reading here and in her plea are a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 2, which reads, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop like rain, my speech condense like dew, like gentle rain on grass, like showers on new growth. One of the oldest characterizations of God is found in Exodus 34, 6-7. This ancient liturgical fragment describes God as, quote, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. I mean, heck, even a second grader can understand that, right? What's God like, preacher? Merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. It is a liturgical formula alluded to in multiple books of the Old Testament, believe it or not, including Numbers, Joel, numerous songs, Nehemiah, and believe it or not, even the book of Jonah. It seems clear that mercy is a quintessential characteristic of God, and as such, is a quality that we should wholeheartedly embrace and emulate as believers, right? It's simple. So with that, thank you for showing up today. Be well. Leave this place. Be merciful, right? Because blessed are the merciful, right? If only it were just that simple. You know, as a purely theoretical concept, mercy sounds like a great idea. And it is a great idea. Even those who reject Christ are impressed by these simple words. I think the problem comes when we find ourselves in situations where we are required to actually implement them. Approving of mercy and actually showing mercy. Now, those are two different matters altogether. And I think we struggle with this because needing to show mercy presupposes that a real debt is owed in some form or fashion. I mean, look at here, I don't have a problem with mercy if I'm on the receiving end. Amen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's only when I'm required to show mercy that I struggle. Because the one kind of person, the only kind of person to whom I can show mercy is the one who doesn't deserve it. Matthew beautifully describes this in a parable found in chapter 18. The parable tells the king of a servant who owed him an impossibly large sum. The king calls for payment. The servant begs for more time to pay for his debt. And the king, seeing the hopelessness of the servant situation, cancels the debt altogether. That's a great story. It would be nice if it ended just right there, but it doesn't. Jesus goes on to say that no sooner had the servant gone out of the king's presence, he found a fellow servant who owed him a debt. And the forgiven servant grabbed his fellow servant by the neck and choked him and demanded, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him saying, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Those are the very words that the forgiven servant had used with the king when he pleaded for more time to pay back his, his impossibly large sum. But the irony is lost on him. The forgiven servant has his colleague thrown in prison and Jesus says when the other servants saw what he had done, saw everything that had happened, they went to their master 
in great distress. And the master called the servant in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? I mean, the obvious question when we read that and when we hear this story is why the forgiven servant couldn't see the hypocrisy of his behavior. Well, the answer's simple. It's not rocket science. He had a legitimate complaint against this guy. And that is precisely the problem with mercy. There is only one kind of person to whom you and I can show mercy. A person who, quite frankly, doesn't deserve it. There is a story told about a mother who came to Napoleon on behalf of her son who was about to be executed. But Napoleon pointed out to her that it was the man's second offense, and justice demanded death. I do not ask for justice, the woman replied. I plead for mercy. The emperor objected, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, the mother replied, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask. The legend says her son was pardoned. As Christians, when we hear that word mercy, we tend to think of grace. We kind of conflate the two, right? And as Christians, we're very comfortable with this language of grace. A little too much sometimes, I think. It's part of our vocabulary. The nomenclature of grace is embedded in our hymnody. You know the song, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We say these things about ourselves, and we feel good about it. I mean, we enjoy the experience of God's grace, but it can be a very different story when we have to show grace to each other. I mean, it's one thing to sing about being a wretch. It's something else altogether to worship with the person who acts like a wretch. So while we sing about grace, what we practice, in some cases, is retaliation. It's not that we despise the notion of mercy. I mean, how could we? But mercy does not come naturally to us. And it seems to work against our innate desire for justice sometimes. It's really a paradox of sorts when you think about it. This idea of a God who believes, uh, it, it, we believe is, is merciful and forgiving on the one hand and ultimately just on the other. Now, it's not a paradox I'm going to attempt to resolve this morning. You're welcome. So, yeah. What I know, though, what I know is that as followers of Christ, we are called, dare I say, commanded to imitate this divine quality of mercy. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, I know it's hard. 
I say that every time I talk to you. I know this stuff is hard. I know it is. Mercy given implies a loss. The debt that we are owed is wiped away. I think we would rather blame someone. Point out their failings, right? Exact our pound of flesh, so to speak. Yet as hard as it is to understand, the example and command of Christ makes plain that playing the blame game only begets bitterness and resentment. And we know the language of blame all too well, loved ones, and we need an antidote. We need a force powerful enough to break through this cycle of resentment. And Jesus gives it to us in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I would submit to you today that the only force powerful enough to break through this deadly cycle of bitterness is the mercy of God. Mercy begets mercy. It is how I think this whole Christian thing works in the passive tense, right? Work with me now. We love because we have been loved. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And we show mercy because we have been shown mercy. You remember Portia's words? Consider that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, she says. And that same prayer doth teach us to render the deeds of mercy. There is mercy in grace. There is mercy in compassion and mercy in forgiveness, but there's mercy that obtains mercy. It is in this way you see that mercy is twice blessed. It blesses those that give and those that take. Now for centuries, people have looked at this verse and said, well, you must be merciful if God is going to be merciful to you. This means that you must forgive others if you are to be forgiven, like a litmus test. But they're missing the point, I think. I think they're missing it entirely. I think the point is pretty simple. By performing acts of mercy, you will show yourself to be forgiven by God, you see. That's the point. The person who has been shown mercy by God and knows what it is like to taste the goodness and the forgiveness and mercy of God, how can that person be anything but forgiving? How can such a person be anything but merciful to others who are in the same predicament? Maybe, maybe that's what this passage means. Our compassion, our love for the lost, our love for the poor flow out of a heart that has been forgiven and is overflowing with gratitude out of a heart that has been shined upon by grace, mercy, and the peace of God. When we have been the object, you see, of God's salvation, it ought to be that we show mercy to every single person around us. That is the greatest evidence that God has shined into our heart. It is when we help those who are helpless, lift the downtrodden, and heal the brokenhearted, and those who are suffering. That is why there is no mercy without grace. Yep, I said that out loud, didn't I? No mercy without grace. You see, here, the, the blessing is the same as the condition. The merciful are shown mercy. In the three Beatitudes that have preceded this in our series, the condition is the antithesis of the blessing. The poor in spirit are given a kingdom of heaven. 
Those who mourn are comforted. The meek shall inherit the earth. In other words, the blessing answers our need. Mercy, though, mercy stands as both the blessing and the need. It is twice blessed. It blesseth those that give and those that take. I have four children of wonder. Now, I call them that because I wonder at the choices that they make sometimes. But all kidding aside, they are amazing humans. It is a privilege to be their father. But like most children, they have their moments. They have, have, present tense, have their moments. I mean, raising kids is hard. It's really hard. And we had all the feels in our household. We still do. Anger, bitterness, resentment, heartbreak, disappointment, all the feels. We have all of them. And then as now, when my children enter a dark emotional place, I offer a simple yet powerful remedy. Go do something kind for someone. That's it. Forgive when you don't have to. Yes, forgive your sister. God, please forgive your sister. (laughs) Even though she doesn't deserve it, right? Extend unwarranted love and mercy to someone and, and just watch what happens. Now, I'm happy to report to all of you, my friends, that I've had a 100% success rate when my advice was taken and implemented. The mercy and kindness we extend to others, you see, it refreshes, renews, and revives the one who gives and the one who receives. Mercy stands as both the blessing and the need. Now, finally, mercy. Showing kindness and compassion to someone who has offended us when it is in our power to do otherwise lifts us, you see, out of what we are on our own and radiates the love of Christ, enhancing our relationships with each other and with God. The merciful do their best that they can put aside their own feelings, you see, and think about how someone else is feeling and experiencing something. Mercy is not just about forgiving people, but identifying with them as closely as possible, understanding them in their space. And I don't know about you, but in this hurting and divided world, I feel like that is something we need a whole lot more of these days. Now, I I want to add briefly here the need to learn how to extend some mercy and grace to yourself. Did you hear me? To yourself. And we need to stress this to our children, in my opinion. I read this week that anxiety disorders affect 40 million adults ages 18 or older every year. Beloved, that is 19.1% of the population. Even before the pandemic, Anxiety and depression were becoming more common among children and adolescents, increasing 27 and 24 percent respectively from 2016 to 2019. By 2020, it was estimated that 5.6 million kids had been diagnosed with anxiety problems and 2.4 million had been diagnosed with depression. Beloved, take care of your soul. Take care of your soul. Accept the astonishing fact that you are not perfect. (laughs) And here's the secret. You don't need to be. You don't need to be. Cultivate practices and find spaces and places that communicate the grace and love of Christ in your life. 
You are so much more, so much more than the worst mistake you have ever made. You are loved. You are not broken. You have a gift that the world needs that only you can bear. So be merciful to yourself. Be kind to your soul and take care of it. Because you see, true mercy reconciles and renews. Nothing is harder to accomplish, and I would say nothing is more beautiful, so much so that it, it, it shocks us and it defies our understanding when we see it, yes? I mean, it's hard for our little brains to imagine that we are truly forgiven for what we have done and for what we will do. That, that, that's what Christ has offered us, you see, on the cross. This mind-blowing thing that we call preemptive forgiveness and grace. We are shocked when we read scriptures and hear about a young man who squanders his inheritance, ends up in a gutter, returns home begging, and is greeted by what? A wrathful, vengeful father? A merciful father who extends forgiveness and grace and welcomes his wayward child with open arms. It shocks us. Even the story that Rev. Barb read today, this, this kid, Jacob, ugh, this kid, right? Talk about a problem child. I mean, this kid manipulates and deceives his father to obtain a blessing he has no right to receive. He cons his older brother into surrendering his birthright and later flees with his tail between his legs, fearing his brother's wrath, which he deserves, by the way. And yet years later, years later, upon meeting his brother on the open plain, he sees Esau, and instead of judgment and wrath and vengeance, he experiences mercy. We listen in shock as Esau, who has every right to exact justice from his brother, welcomes him. It makes me tear up when I visualize it. He welcomes him. Keep what you have. I have enough. And then compassionately, out of love, he says, let us journey on our way. I will go alongside you. Elios. It's a good word. Mercy. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show like us God's when mercy seasons justice. Indeed, mercy is the soil from which reconciliation and wholeness spring. It moves us beyond ourselves and into something divine and magnificent. Your takeaways for today. Mercy is easy to understand, but hard to give. Yet like Christ, unrestrained mercy eases our souls and reconciles. The quality of mercy is twice blessed. It enriches those who give and those who receive. Mercy lifts us out of what we are on our own, and it radiates the everlasting light and love of Christ. Let's pray. Generous and ever-faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. Now grant us grace to be not mere hearers of your word, but doers also. 
Guide us from here by the light of your Spirit that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.